I'd ask that you would take God's word in your hands and turn to the book of Titus this morning. We jump back into our series after taking a couple weeks off for the Christmas season, and uh, we find ourselves in the New Testament book uh, of Titus, and we've been studying uh, this book and looking at how it can set us straight, not only in the church as Christians, but setting us straight as Christians within the world. And we find ourselves in Titus chapter, uh, the end of Titus chapter 2, and we'll be moving into Titus chapter uh, 3 this morning. As you're turning there, uh, I want to share a uh, memory as a teenager that I have of my parents. As a teenager, uh, I would be heading out the door to uh, different places to do different high school activities, the things that teenagers do, and my parents would go through this uh, ritual of interrogation, asking questions, uh, things like, where are you going? Who are you going with? What are you going to be doing? And then the, the tough one was always, when do you plan on being home. It was almost like a broken record over and over again, whether mom or dad, those questions would ring true each time I was heading out the door and sometimes even in the car and halfway down the driveway. But even before those questions would even get an answer, my mom would say over and over again, remember who you are. Remember who you are. I wish I could say that I did that, but you, uh, many of you know that, that that's contrary to much of what you've heard about my teenage life. But she would say, remember who you are. And I used to wonder, what does she really mean by that? And as I grew up older and older, uh, it began to settle in my heart what she was saying. She would say, first of all, Tim, remember you're a Badal. We have certain values. We have certain priorities in our lives uh, that make us different than other families. Uh, We have uh, a desire to be uh, respectable people. Uh, We are not people that are known to uh, be troublemakers. We're not people that are known to be lawbreakers. We are, uh, but all, those who uh, respect ourselves in the name that God has given us. And then she would say, but also remember, even more importantly, that you're a Christian. And I'd say, okay, Mom, I, I know, I know I'm a Christian. Say it with me, so I'm a Christian. And I, I didn't think of that verse, you know, where Jesus says, if you deny me before your father, my father, uh, before men, I will deny you before my father. I, I didn't want to say that, especially in front of my friends. My mom would always try to embarrass me with that. Who are you? I'm a Christian, Mom. Like my friends would go, what are you talking about? And yet my mom would say, remember that. You're different than everybody. God has called you and saved you to a different kind of life. You know, that's not just important for teenagers heading out the door, but it's important for all of us as Christians to remember who we are, to remember that we are God's children, that we are a part of the family of God. And because of that, we are to live a certain way. And the book of Titus reminds us of who we are, and then it tells us how we ought to live. Paul isn't articulating anything that's new to the Christians in the first century that he hasn't articulated in other letters, but what he's articulating is a reminder to the person of Titus and to the people on the island of Crete that they are to remember who they are and to be reminded of the truth of God's word. You see, if we don't do that, if we don't remember who we are, if we don't remember who has saved us and the commands of that Lord and Savior that he's given us, then we will lose our moral compass, 
we will lose our way. And so Paul is speaking to a group of people who were notorious for being rude and crude. Remember, they're liars, they're evil brutes, they're lazy gluttons. I hope that doesn't describe us as a people of God. I would hope that no one would describe us in those notorious ways. But this is the group that Paul is writing to. And he says, I want to speak to you to remind you of who you are and what you are called to do. And he's going to do it in two or three ways this morning. He's first going to speak to us as a way of review from our last passage uh, in regards to Christians. He's going to then move to how we are to engage with the authority, uh, engage with those in authority. And then he's going to talk with us how we are to engage in life with society. And so that's what I want to do today because we, just like the people on the island of Crete, are people who want to do what we want to do. We don't want anyone to tell us anything different. We don't want people to interfere with our lives. We as Americans in this Western society assert our rights as individuals and as a result of that give little credence to the thoughts and needs of others around us. And so for many of us, I can assure you today, we will struggle with Paul's words because they run contrary to everything we know as Americans and our understanding of life and liberty. But he shares these words as a reminder of God's good and pleasing will to remind us of who we are and how we as a church and as Christians are to live in this world. So let's look at what he has to say. I would ask that you would stand just once again for the reading of God's word. And we'll start in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And then we'll go through verse 2 of chapter 3. It says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we have worshipped you in song. We have worshipped you in prayer. We have worshipped you in the fellowship of the believers and through the announcing of activities that will bring glory and honor to you in your church and in your communities. And so, Lord, now we come and we turn to your word, the word that changes hearts, the word that changes lives, and we ask that it would change us this morning. So I ask that you would lead and direct the teaching of this word so that it will bring glory and honor to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you would pull out your sermon insert uh, this uh, week because of the holidays, I, I wasn't ready to uh, set my outline when the ladies were closing up the church office, and so it's blank. And so I'm going to ask you, you would write in all of uh, that which is on the screen so you get good notes uh, from this text. And the first thing that we need to understand, if we want to remember who we are, is to remember the words of a great uh, WWF wrestler, The Rock, Dwayne The Rock. The Rock Johnson. 
he would come into the ring and he would always speak about people knowing their role. He would say, know your role. I want us as a group of Christians today to recognize and know our role. To know our role in who we are and what we are called to do as Christians. And the first thing that we need to be able to know in regards to our role is who we are and what has taken place in our lives. And that leads us to the first point, which is knowing our role involves being mindful of our conversion to Christianity. Now, because we've taken a couple weeks off, I want to look again at verses 11 through 14, which Pastor Ben from Uganda taught us almost uh, three weeks ago uh, in regards to, and just again remind us of who we are as believers. Now, notice what the text says. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. We need to recognize, just as the people on the island of Crete needed to recognize, is that they no longer were just Cretans. They no longer were their own, but they now were people who reflected Christ to the world around them. And by reflecting Christ, they would begin uh, to understand and know that what took place at their conversion would change the very essence of who they are. They were no longer people that would be known as evil brutes and lazy gluttons, but they would be people who are known as holy and righteous individuals. And that's true for us as Christians today. We are not who we were before we came to know Christ because in the appearing of Jesus Christ, that which we have celebrated now for the last month surrounding Christmas, this Jesus who came, came to change our lives. And it involves, this change of life involves a couple things that I want us to review. First of all, it involves receiving the free gift of grace. It involves receiving the free gift of grace. Paul reminds these uh, Christians and us today that being a Christian has nothing to do with who we are or what we do or don't do for God. It is all about the grace. That word grace is God's unmerited favor. When he sent Jesus Christ into this world, he sent his uh, undeserved favor upon us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He did that so that we who are dead in our trespasses and sin might be made alive in Christ through the gift of faith. And so he gives it. And so Jesus Christ appears, and this Jesus Christ appears to bring salvation to all types of people. The people that were in uh, the days of the first century, like Paul, a Jew who was zealous for the faith, who was uh, desiring to be righteous in every way of the Pharisaical law. Then we look at those Gentiles that Jesus Christ came, like Titus, who wasn't a Jew, but a Gentile, whom God had called uh, to a great opportunity of ministry on the island of Crete. But God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ also extended uh, to the people on the island of Crete. Even those liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons, those good-for-nothing Cretans, Jesus Christ came to save as well. And that's a wonderful reminder for us that the free gift of God extends to all of us today. No matter your pedigree, no matter your family tradition or makeup, that Jesus Christ's grace is able to save you from your sin. And all you need to do is receive it. 
The second thing that we must remember in regards to who we are is that we must remember that involved, involved in being a Christian is the process of restraining ourselves from temptation and sin. Notice what he says again in verse 13. He tells us, or in verse 12, it teaches us this grace to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What grace does is it doesn't tell us all the ways that we are not going to achieve the righteous standing that God wants, but grace says you are righteous because of what I've done, and now I will implant in you the Holy Spirit who will indwell you, who will give you the power and the strength to live the righteous and self-controlled life that I've called you to live. You as a believer never have to worry about, do I have enough power to say no to sin? To say no to the worldly lusts and the worldly passions that are around us. Jesus has given us the gift of his spirit that transcends all of our troubles and all of our temptations because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we need to remember that because we're going to get into uh, some real tough temptations here in a couple verses. Now notice the third thing. It involves resting in God's promised return. Not only are we to uh, trust Christ as our Savior and to try to live as Christ, but Christ says, I'm coming back. Notice what he says in the next verse. He says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have an expectation, a hope, not some wishful thinking, but based on the faithfulness of God who has been completely faithful in saving us from all of our issues and concerns and sins in the past. We now look forward saying he's been faithful in the past. Now we will watch and see how he will be faithful in the future. My friends, one day Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to take us to be with him so that we may spend eternity with him. But in doing so, on that great day of his return will be a day where he will reckon of his people what we have done. And so we will be called, we will be held accountable to how we lived this life. And so we must rest in the hope that God has given us the strength to be the Christians that God has called us to be so that when he comes, we are ready. And finally, he has given us this grace so that we can reflect our salvation to others. Jesus has come so that you and I might have life in a world of death. So you and I might be light in a world of darkness. So that people will see not just a savior, but people who have been saved, who are now his people, verse 14 says, his people who have been purified, who have been made righteous, so that we now can reflect to the world around us that Jesus Christ, in fact, has changed our lives, and we are going to use the rest of our lives to show the world that, that we're different that we uh, go to the beat of a different drummer, that we pursue a different kind of life, a different kind of hope, a different style, if you will, of how we are living because we now follow Jesus. But how is that to be seen? How are we to reflect it? This is where Titus now is moved by Paul uh, to notice that this grace of God has feet to it. 
You see, a lot of us as Christians think that the grace of God, our theology, never impacts our lives. But good theology will always impact your life. And so the grace that we learned about a couple weeks ago impacts our life and how we will relate to the world around us. Because we can't be saved by grace and not impact the world of grace if that saving is true. And so notice what he goes on next to say within our text this morning. He says, these then are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Now just a quick uh, sidebar, if you will. The things that we have just articulated are a part of a more major portion of Scripture that Titus was to teach. Notice in verse 1, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. That's one bookend. And then verse 15 is another bookend. These then are the things you should teach. Now for those uh, families that have just dedicated children, and for those families that are represented here today, this is what we are calling you as parents to be a part of. Your calling as parents isn't just to take care of the physical and emotional uh, stability and well-being of the family, but your job is to teach these things that your child can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That your child, as they grow older, doesn't have to fall to every kind of temptation and sin, but because of the gift of God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, they may be able to say no to those things and pursue a life of righteousness. That our children, as they grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that they would reflect the person and work of Christ Jesus in their lives. My friends, that is the great endeavor of spiritual parenting. That is the job uh, for not only the parents, but for every one of us to do that in our lives. And the job of the preacher, Titus, is to remind the people of this over and over again. And so notice what he says. He says, all right, these then are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Now notice what he says, this gift of grace now moves, this grace is going to change how you view authority. Notice what he says, he says this grace will now lead us to a different kind of conduct when it comes to authority, write that in your outlines. It will change our conduct towards authority. For the Cretan believers, it would have been easy for them to accept Jesus Christ, but to continue to live just as they did before they were called. Barna Study Group tells us that most Christians look just the same as non-believers. That there's really no difference. But this is not what Paul tells Titus. He says that if we are uh, impacted by grace, it will impact not just our church life, but our conduct throughout our week in the world. So it's true for us, not just the Cretans of the first century. We call ourselves Christians, yet we fail to show the world the life of Christ that he has called us to demonstrate. And so as a result of that, one of the biggest ways we see that is in our issue with authority. And we see it at a very young age. My children struggle with authority. I tell my children to come here, and they don't come. And I come here, come here. I think of the old Bill Cosby routine. 
You know, it's like I'm speaking a foreign language. And the reason why is not because my kids are hard of hearing. We checked it out. They're listening and hearing just fine. But the problem is, is they say, hey, Dad, I'm playing my video game. Hey, Dad, I'm watching this program. Who are you to tell me that I have to come now? I'll come when I want to come. And so it starts. Where do they get that? I'm telling you, they get it from their environment. They... It's something they learn. No, it's because they're little sinners. You have little savages in your house. It's like the Lord of the Flies at the Bedal house. And they want to do what they want to do. And you know what they, where they learned that from? From their mom and dad. They learned it from us because we want to do what we want to do. No one, we, I don't want to listen to what someone tells me what to do. I'm an independent spirit. And so we go to work. And as a believer, we should be changed by grace, but then the boss tells us to do something that we don't want to do. And we say, who are you to tell me what to do? We do it within the church. We do it within our country, which we'll talk about here in a moment. And so authority is the place, is what Paul's first place where the battlefield of how grace has changed us will take place. Because it is there that grace needs to saturate. It is grace that lubricates, if you will, the wheels of our needing to be submitting to the authorities around us. Now he speaks of this authority and he tells us that there are two areas that there is authority in our lives. The first one is within the church. He says to the pastor, to the elder there in Crete, these then, Titus, are the things you should teach. Encourage, rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. The word authority there is the Greek word epitasso. Epitasso is the word that carries the idea of a royal decree or a command. And this royal decree or command was something that was not negotiable. You did it. If the king said you did something, you were to do that. It wasn't negotiable. Now, this word in the Greek doesn't just speak primarily of the command, but it speaks of the force that that command is given. What what Titus is to teach, what Paul is is articulating to Titus is, you teach with all authority. Now, that goes against our American culture, because we would say right away, if Titus was to live out this call that Paul has given them, which God has given them, we would say, hey, who do you think you are? Who made you a boss? And who put you in charge? This is the whole reason for the text. Paul, the old apostle, is saying in his writing to the island of Crete, and he's saying, Titus is my guy. I trust Titus. He's been called by God, and he's been given a certain task to set things in order, to set them straight. And because of that, he's going to need authority. And he is to exercise that authority. Now this, notice it's to be seen in three areas. How is he to do it? First of all, he is to teach. Write that in your outline somewhere. He's to teach. Now notice he is to teach in accordance, Titus chapter 2 verse 1, in accordance to sound doctrine. He was to continually, each of these things are seen uh, in the uh, present tense, which means they are to be ongoing, continually be done. He needs to be continually teaching, continually encouraging, continually uh, rebuking or, uh, or uh, dealing with people that are, that are uh, fighting the system. He is to deal with them on an ongoing basis. 
He first is to teach them of their salvation, which we've talked about, how they came to know Christ and what Christ has done in their life. And then, as we saw in chapter 2, he is to talk about the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And so what Titus does with all authority, or I'm sorry, what Paul does with all authority is he says, older men, you are to do this. Younger men, you are to do that. Older women, you do these things. Younger women, you do those things. Slaves, be obedient to your masters. And he doesn't speak these as uh, suggestions, but he shares them as commands. And so this is the kind of teaching that he is to do. Now, it has a, a positive side and a negative side. The positive side of his teaching is encouraging, our text says. This word encourage literally is the word parakaleo, uh, which means that he was to come alongside the people and spur them on. Of course, we know that the word parakaleo in the noun form is the word paraclete, where we get the idea and understanding of the Holy Spirit. He is our helper. He is the one who comes alongside us. It's the same word here. We are to uh, be, as church leaders, those who in our teaching come alongside those who are walking the walk of Christ. The best way, and I was thinking about this, the best way I can illustrate this for you is an activity that I did with uh, my middle son Joshua this summer, and that was teaching him how to ride a bike. And my job as a father uh, is to help, and it's one of the things that I'm called to do, teach the boy how to ride a bike. Well, he had been on training wheels, and he said, I'm done with the training wheels, Dad. I want to learn how to ride on two wheels. And so I stood next to him, and we would start walking, and then we would start running, and he's pedaling, and I'm trying to keep up, but asthma's kicking in, and I'm falling over. But I did okay, and we'd follow along, and he would say, Dad, let go. I'd let go, and the first time he just fell right over because I didn't even think to catch him when he fell down. He says, Dad, you got to catch me when it looks like I'm falling. So you have this dichotomy because you say, let go, no, hold on, let go, hold on. And so the neighbors must have seen just a wonderful side of me holding on, letting go, running, sweating, dying as I ran along this uh, bike. But the job is, is to, with those who are learning their way, to come alongside them and to make sure they don't fall so much that they hurt themselves, but allow them to learn the process. And just as a child, allowing my son to learn how to ride the bike without allowing him to fall and hurting himself, but giving him the ability to ride on his own. So Titus's job, and the job of the elders here uh, in, in our context today, is to come alongside you as the people of God and help you and train you to greater and more mature understandings of Scripture, but not allowing you in the process to fall and hurt yourself. That's what he's doing. But he says that there's a negative side. He says, these then are the things you should teach, encourage. Now he says, rebuke. This is the word elegos, and this word was used in a courtroom. It was used in a courtroom by a prosecuting attorney who brought evidence before the judge that would prove the offender's guilt. Here are the things that so-and-so has done that makes them guilty of the crime that we are presenting to the court. This is this word, rebuke. 
And so the job of Titus wasn't just to be the one who went alongside the people as they walked the life of faith, but those who turned away from the faith, those who turned away from a life that is becoming of a believer, the job of the elder Titus was to come alongside them and not just love them and pat them on the back, but sometimes rebuke them. This is what is said in Titus chapter 1. Notice what it says in verse, uh, let's see here, uh, 11. It says, there are those who must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And they do it for the sake of dishonest gain. Notice what verse 13 says. He says, therefore, rebuke them. It's the same word. Rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith. The idea here is that sometimes Titus would have to uh, go before someone and literally what he would have to do is bring to light the offender's infraction to show someone what they've done wrong and show them what they must do to get it right. Now I will tell you something, this doesn't happen in the church. And the reason why isn't because we have evolved to say, well, we don't have to do that. It is because in our American society, we say we're our own individuals. We can do what we want, and nobody will tell us what to do because I am my own person. But Paul's words say there are going to be people that are called in the church to do such a task, and they are to do it with all authority. But who is this call to? Well, we know that this calling is to the elders. The reason, he says in verse 5 of chapter 1, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. Why? Because there needs to be an authority within the church. Because without authority, you have anarchy. And so someone must have the job and responsibility of not only encouraging the people, but rebuking the people when their understanding is wrong. Now, here is the great uh, safeguard. The great safeguard is he doesn't put it in the life of one person. He doesn't say, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to have one president, and this one president's going to take care of everything. And so a part of his capricious ideas and thoughts, he can do whatever he wants. No. What Paul tells Titus to do is to set up a group of men. And that these group of men, their job is not to lead the church as they think it should be led, but to lead the church of Jesus Christ, leading it the way that God wants it to be led. And so these elders are given that job within the church. And so what, what, notice what Paul says to Titus. And what we need to hear today is that when we lead with that kind of authority, there will be a response. Notice the response. He says, don't let anyone despise you. The idea of despising there in the text literally means that people will just, um, just get rid of you. They will say, you know what, uh, whatever, I'm going to do whatever I want. I, who needs to follow your rules? Who needs to follow what you think is right? You know what, Who are you to be able to do it? I'm just going to write you off and I'm going to do my own thing. That's literally what the word is. And so what Paul is telling Titus is that leadership isn't going to be easy. Someone once said that leadership is the easiest thing in the world, especially when people aren't involved. I like that. It's difficult to lead people. People will judge your motives. People will despise you. They will see you either as being too lax 
or too legalistic. And so you as a leader make a decision on something and some will say, well, we should go much farther than that. And other people will say, well, why did you go that far? That's too far. That's too legalistic. And this is the paradox or if you will, the the balancing act of the role of elders within the church. And so the job of us as elders is to do these things, to do it according to God's word. That's important. Not to do it how we see it, but according to God's word. And in doing that, we should never let anyone despise us for doing that. Now notice he moves from the church now to verse 1. And it involves the country. Now this is where grace really needs to be seen. For some of us, you say, yeah, it's easy to, to follow uh, the leadership of elders. They're godly individuals. They're following the word of God. I can agree with that. Let's move on. But notice now, he says, now remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. The Cretans were notorious for being rabble-rousers. These were people that didn't want to follow anybody, including uh, the leader in Rome. Who is Caesar? Who is he? Who is the emperor that can tell us here on the island of Crete what to do? But notice what Paul says. He says, remind the people to be subject. That word is, uh, remind the people to submit. It's the Greek word hupotasso. It was a military word. It was a military word that spoke about knowing your proper rank in the army. In a non-military term, it spoke about the voluntary attitude of giving in and cooperating with those who govern over us. And so what Paul is telling Titus is remind those rabble-rousers. Remind those who have the temptation to fight the power, if you will, that they are to submit. They are to voluntarily, not just because they're told to do so, but they are to voluntarily say, hey, you're in charge, and my God has put you in charge, and so because my God has put you in charge, I will follow what you say as long as it doesn't go against the word of God. And that's important because one of the first things that we will hear from believers as a message like this is being preached is the exception. Well, tell me about the exception. Tell me when I can fight against the government. And they will no doubt bring up Acts 5.29. They will say Peter and John are brought before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin says, you stop talking about Christ. You stop pursuing Jesus Christ. And Peter and John say, hey, we can't follow you because in following you, we go against our God and he outranks you. So we're going to listen to our general and not some puny little lieutenant uh, that's here on earth. So we will follow God, not the dictates or decrees of man. Here's the problem. If you look at that one exception clause in context with Romans chapter 13, that has a whole understanding of our job to submit to governing authorities, and 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, then there is very small times where Christian civil, civil disobedience is the way to go. And I might add that within our culture in America today, because we are a representative government, I know of nothing, and I am a huge history buff, that there are very few times the only people that I might say might have had a reason to revolt would have been the slaves of a couple hundred years ago. We don't have the luxury of speaking ill, of breaking down uh, the civil understanding of government. 
Now, I know some of you struggle with that because you, you're busy watching all of the pundits on TV and watching what they're saying, and they're saying everything about where the government's going and how it's falling apart. And I would say that the primary job of the Christian is to be known as one who submits to the governing authorities. Now, if Barack Obama, President Obama, gets up and says, you cannot preach Christ, I give you the permission to go against his word. But just because you don't like where health is going, just because you don't like where some of the things are leading to, understand that in this context, the Cretans are being called to follow a guy by the name of Nero. And you may think that President Obama's bad, and that may be your opinion, but I can assure you Obama's a saint compared to King Nero. He was taking Christians and he was sending them to the lions. And so what Paul is telling Titus is Christians must be known as godly individuals who live out this grace in submission to the kings and authorities around them. This is what it's called to. Now, the submission is to be fleshed out, notice, in obedience. i got to get moving. It needs to be fleshed out in obedience. Notice what he says. He says they are to be obedient. The Greek word there literally means to be obedient. I can't explain it anymore. Do what you're told to do. Don't be a lawbreaker. And so a believer's job is to submit, and that submission is a thing of the heart, and the heart then says, obey what the law says. But notice there's another part of it, and that is to be eager to do what is good. The idea here of being ready speaks of a prepared state. In verse 14, it says it again, eager to do what is good. The idea here for the church and for the believer is that we would be known in our communities as one who is beneficial to the overall well-being of the people in the community. Some years ago, we were talking with Kevin O'Brien from our church, and Kevin asked Keith and I a question. If Village Bible Church ceased to exist, would Sugar Grove miss it? And then at that point, I had to say, I'm not sure they would. I'm not sure what we do. I mean, we have great worship, and we're, we're meeting in needs of people here, but we're doing it with inside these four walls, even though this building has a little more than four walls. And so we began to think about how do we move our people out into the community? And it didn't take you very long to grab that vision to the point that we were awarded this citizenship award from our community just a couple years ago. That our community said, hey, Sugar Grove Village Bible Church, uh, Sugar Grove thanks you, Village Bible Church, for being in our community because you are impacting us in a beneficial way. We got a message from the Corn Boil Association. In many ways, they said, we could not have reached out to the children of the community without Village Bible Church being a part of it. That's a testimony that is what speaks of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in the community. We should be known as people who are ready to do what is good for the community. And so we have a standing uh, thing with the city of Sugar Grove. That is, if you ever need anything, we want you to make, make us your first phone call. If you need a place to use the building, we want to open it up for you. If you need us for anything, we will mobilize our people to help you to meet the needs of those around us. 
This is what Paul is telling Titus that needs to be done. Don't be rabble-rousers. Don't speak ill of those in authority, but be ready to do what is good. Now, notice, he shifts very quickly. He noticed from the authorities and rulers to those, all those in our society. So my final point, very quickly, is our commission of love towards a society. This grace is to be lived out in how we live out our lives. Now, notice what he says. He goes from rulers and authorities. He says to now, in verse 2, to slander no one. Not just rulers and authority, but don't slander anyone. To be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility towards all men. And so our job of living out grace... And remembering who we are and knowing our role isn't just with our bosses and our governing authorities and to our parents and whoever may be an authority in your life, but now it's to everybody. Now notice what he says. He says we are first, this commission of love involves serving. We've addressed this, but again a reminder that we are on a commission to serve people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I will tell you, our job is not just to put hot food on a table. It isn't just to put clothes on backs of people. It isn't just to bring inner city kids uh, out to have a great time of fun and fellowship at, at the local church. But our job throughout all of those things must never abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ. We always, as we hand out a meal, say, I am feeding you, I'm partaking in helping you with this meal because the grace of Jesus Christ compels me to do so. Now, I share this meal, but I also share the commission that I've been given to share Christ to the world around me. And so we always share the gospel as we serve the community around us. So it involves serving. Peter speaks of this when he says, live such good lives among the pagans that they will glorify God. That people will sit there and say, I don't know why why John has the faith that he does. I don't understand his whole relationship with Jesus, but I am glad that he's a co-worker of mine. I don't know if I agree or understand all of what Village Bible Church says, but I'm glad Village Bible Church is in our community. That they can glorify God by saying, hey, Christians are beneficial for the world around us. It involves serving. Notice involves speaking. We're called not to slander. This word is the generic word that speaks of all forms of harmful speech, such as slander, malice, gossip, lying. It's used 34 times in the New Testament. It means a malicious misrepresentation. What this means is not, it does not mean you can't disagree with people, that you cannot speak your mind. Uh, This last week, uh, we were at uh, my in-law's house, and we had all the children around, and and some of my uh, sisters and brother-in-laws and close family really struggle with my belief system. And it always comes up around the discussion of the table. And I got to tell you, we were talking about the issue of truth and all of that, and I said, can we agree that the snow is white? And my sister-in-law says, no, it's not white. It depends on who you are. And I says, the snow is white, right? And she says, you're just trying to get me to accept your Jesus. And I said, well, Merry Christmas to you too. I, I can disagree with her. And I can and lovingly still minister to her. But I need to be very careful that I don't begin to judge her heart and begin to speak ill against her because she is a, a human being who God has called me to love and respect and honor. And that's what I'm called to do. 
We're called to do that. So it doesn't mean disagreeing with someone, but it doesn't allow your anger over a disagreement to allow you to sin with your heart and with your words. Our desire as Christians must be to speak benevolently to all, doing all we can to give the benefit of the doubt of the one that we're having the conversation with. Now notice he goes on from speaking to showing. He says, we are to be peaceable, considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. In the same tone, Paul finishes this passage by reminding us to continually demonstrate the kind of life that is consistent with grace. God has saved us. He has saved us not because of something we've done, but according to his mercy. And so in turn, we should show mercy and grace to the world around us. Notice what he says. It involves being peaceable. Literally, that means not a fighter. If you are known as a fighter, if you are known as one who is always angry and being contentious, then you're not living out the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it comes with being considerate of others' feelings and thoughts and needs, he says. And finally, he says, we are to show true humility towards all men. That we are to recognize that we are sinners just like everyone else. That just because we're saved, it wasn't because we got something or we did something that makes us better than anyone else, but it's because Jesus has shown us mercy and grace in our hour of need. Now, all of this, let me close with this, is to do three things. To live this way is to then live out three verses in chapter 2. It is to live out the verse that tells us that our lives should reflect Christ so that no one... In verse 5, no one will be able to malign the word of God. That's the first thing. Number two, we are to do this and live this out so that verse 10 uh, can, I'm sorry, verse 8 can be uh, lived out true in our lives that no one will have anything bad to say about us. And then finally, in verse 10, we are to live out this life of grace so that the teaching about our God, our Savior, will be attractive. Let me close with this poem. You're a gospel, and you're writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the deeds that you do and by the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithful or true. Just what is the gospel according to you? What are you writing? What are you saying to the world around you? What are we as Christians saying to our governing authorities That we have to be watched because we're troublemakers or because we are people who long to love our God and love our neighbors. That is the role that we are called by grace to have. And it's our calling now to live it. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that this passage would come and ring true in our lives. That we would live out these truths Lord, it's not easy. We struggle with those who are in authority. Lord, we don't agree with everything that is done, whether in Washington or in the workplace or even in our own homes. And so, Lord, our desire of the flesh is to fight against that. And Lord, I pray that in our struggle with that, that we would lean always to grace, mercy, to show honor and respect. Lord, whether in the church or in our country, That, Lord, we would not use our mouths or our hearts or our hands to do anything, but be eager to do what is good and not to harm. 
Lord, that this church and these people would be known as people who are eager to benefit the lives of those around us. Not because we just want to be known as a good group of people, because we want to be known as people who have been changed since Jesus Christ appeared in our lives and saved us from our sins. Lord, that's our desire. That is what your word says will bring glory and honor to you. So that is our role. We accept it with open hands and open hearts so that we may in turn live the life that you've called us to so that people will see that you live in us.